I can be sure that this uh, is a true story because people make things up, but it makes a point well. But it's a story of one time there was a a Christian convention, a Christian conference going on, and the preacher um, was standing in front of the um, the congregation who were there for the evening. There was hundreds of them. It was a big event. It was a big conference, big convention. And as he stood there on this platform in, in front of hundreds and hundreds of people who were waiting for the message, who had turned up eagerly, the Bible was ready to hear God's Word, he, he said to them, hands up, who wants to go to heaven? Well, in front of them, of course, there was a sea of hands, a big forest of hands all over the place. And so he asked another question. He said, hands up, who wants to go to heaven tonight? And suddenly kind of a wee bit of embarrassment in the room. Did I I leave my hand up? Did I put my hand down? Some embarrassed sniggers and, and giggles. Suddenly the rooms got filled with uncertainty and awkwardness. Oh, it might have been similar if, uh, if we'd said, or if I'd said at the beginning of this series, if um, people of Claremont, hand, hands up, who wants to grow in the Christian life? Who, who wants to grow in following Jesus and knowing Jesus, knowing God better? Well, I can't see your hands out there, but I, I hope that they're up or at least instinctively up. Yes, that's what I want. But then suppose we move on to the question, who, who wants to grow in following Jesus? Who wants to know God better through suffering? Uh, well, maybe that's a bit like being asked about going to heaven tonight. I'm not so sure about that. There's some debate about who wrote this New Testament book of James, but no matter who it was, he was very realistic and very straight to the point. He's writing, verse 1 of chapter 1, to uh, Christians who are scattered, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. He's writing to Christians who are a small group of people, and people who were hurting, people who were being persecuted, people who were suffering. So what should or what do Christians do when life is a series of heavy trials? How how should we act when it seems that our faith in following Jesus is giving us more trouble than it seems to be blessing us? Seems to be giving us more problems than solutions. Jesus himself spent much of his ministry under pressure, and he warned his followers to expect the stresses, the strains, the, the opposition that he himself had. John chapter 15 at verse 18 to 21, he underlines that just before he's going to the cross too. The world's hated me, it's going to hate you too. And James knew that this little gatherings of believers across the place that he was writing to were going to have trials of many different kinds, he says in verse 2. Some pressures on Jesus' followers are ones that we might expect. Temptations to cheat, trying to overcome them. Learning about forgiveness, about turning the other cheek. Other trials come and take us completely by surprise. But what does James then say to this small, scattered church finding its feet in a hostile world, this group of people trying to make sense of this business of following Jesus? 
Well, three things in the um, first um, 11 or 11 verses of the chapter. Firstly, he says, verses 2 to 4, consider it pure joy. What? Pure joy. James, are you pure joking? Consider it pure joy when you suffer. Isn't it great fun to have rocks thrown at you? Isn't it fabulous to get a doing? What could be more fun than being thrown to the lions? It's wonderful. Consider it pure joy. Well, clearly that's not what he means. James and Jesus before him is not saying that persecution should make us happy. We're not being told to pretend that we enjoy pain, that we enjoy being humiliated and tortured. Rather, the, the, the verse says, verse 2, consider. Consider it pure joy. Let us think about it and, and work out. This is how we should understand and view trials. Not by pretending it's fun. Not by just saying, where can I get a stiff upper lip? Rather, he's saying, consider, think about our trials in, in a certain way. Trials and opposition can actually help us. They teach us to persevere, verse 3. And Paul said the same in the Romans chapter 5 and verses that we began the service with. They teach us perseverance so that we become more mature Christians. It's one part of the way that we become more like Jesus. Trials and persecutions, they're the Christian equivalent of grow bags. Faith grows through learning to trust God and to persevere during hardships. Suffering proves and strengthens and deepens faith, brings us closer to Jesus as we learn to rely on Him, as we receive comfort from Him, as we more consciously aim and direct ourselves at serving Him and obeying Him. Now, that's not to say that we should go out and, and look for ways in, in which we suffer. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was part of an assassination attempt in Hitler's life and who, who was murdered by the Nazis just before the Allies um, got there. Bonhoeffer wrote a lot about Christian discipleship and suffering, and he, he said, you know, you, you don't have to go looking for the cross if you're going to follow Jesus. Just get on with obeying him. The cross is there. You'll find it soon enough. All we've got to do is pick it up and go with it. Trials are not things then to be welcomed for their own sake, but we should consider it joy that we are worthy, been counted worthy to go the way of Christ. We should consider it a joy as saying, this is something that's going to prove my faith, prove the reality of my salvation. So count it pure joy. And then he says, verses 5 to 8, ask for wisdom. Now, it's not that long since we were doing a series on the book of Proverbs where wisdom is a very big theme in the book. And we saw that wisdom is not the same thing as knowing all the answers. Wisdom is not the same thing as having a great deal of information and great, great intellect. Wisdom was knowing how to behave appropriately, how to behave rightly in the situation. What was the next step to take? And if we are to figure out how to be faithful to the Lord in hard times, how we should behave when following Jesus is tough, we will need wisdom. And so, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Ask, pray, ask God for wisdom. 
because it's not the case that every instance of suffering produces Christian growth. Sometimes we just become more bitter. Sometimes we become more disillusioned. Sometimes we blame God and, and keep Him away at a distance and say, I'm just going to chuck all of that in. It's not a direct equation. Suffering equals Christian growth. No, suffering and, and opposition means that we have to have the wisdom to ask God to say, what's going on here, so that we can consider it pure joy. Our response is not something automatic. We need to discern, need to choose, need to ask for wisdom. And notice verse 5, when we ask God for wisdom, we are asking a God who gives generously, who gives to all without finding fault, and who has promised, verse 5, to give. We also need to ask for wisdom because it's all too easy, and Christians have fallen into this trap on many an occasion, when we all too easy to mistake opposition as being opposition against the gospel, when in fact it's opposition about the way that we are telling the gospel. Sometimes Christians have been opposed or criticized, not because they're following Jesus, but they've just been judgmental or superior or obnoxious and narrow-minded and other things. We need wisdom to be able to discern. And then he says, thirdly, verses 9 to 11, take pride. And again, that sounds strange. I mean, it sounds strange to uh, be asked to consider it joy when you've got trials. And it's strange to, say, to hear him say, take pride, when I thought, I thought the business here was following Jesus who was humble. But elsewhere, Paul tells us that the gospel removes any basis for boasting, Romans 3.27. But what James is referring to here is a boasting and a confidence in the gospel itself and not boasting in any kind of self-promotion. He takes the example of people, whether they are rich or poor. He's saying, whether you're rich or poor, whatever end of the pecking order you find yourself, you have not to be boasting about your financial position or your economic status or your standing in society's eyes, but rather we are to see ourselves in Christ. The rich and the poor will have different experiences, different outlooks, different blind spots as well. And no matter what else James is saying, the gospel is a great leveler. We are all beggars looking to the grace of God for eternal food that only Jesus can provide. And one way that this leveling should be seen is that opposition to following Jesus will be experienced by all of us, rich and poor, clever and not so clever, fast runners and slow runners, whatever. And we are not to rely as individuals or as a congregation on our own ideas, our own energy, our own cleverness, our own financial clout or whatever. None of that's going to keep us faithful to Jesus. None of that will keep us moored to the gospel. The poor are to remember their high position. They are sons and daughters of the living God. They are exalted by the gospel. And the rich are to remember, James says, their low position. They have been humbled by the gospel. They could not buy salvation. It gave them no advantages in, in winning the love of God. The poor need to reflect on the certainty of heaven. The rich reflect on the transience of this earth. Because it is God's estimation that matters. And it contradicts the instinctive way in which we look at things and the things that we pick up from the world around us. 
So then, these three, says James in this first chapter, count it joy. Not be happy because somebody's beaten you up, but count it a joy when you have to suffer for Christ because it will prove faith, it will give perseverance, it will bring hope. Ask for wisdom because we need to know and understand what's going on. It's not some automatic process. And thirdly, take pride, but pride in the gospel and in God who gives that gospel and not in ourselves. And these three things are not just pieces of good advice, but they're instructions about how we see the bigger picture, how we can see beyond ourselves and see that life is not just about us and see who we are in God's calling and in God's purposes. Hence, the outcome, verse 12, is not that you get wealthy, not that you will never be sick, not that you will be amazingly popular wherever you go. Rather, verse 12, the reward is the crown of life. Being received, that is, by the Lord as part of His victorious overcoming of evil, being part of the joyful final victory of the new heavens and the new earth. The crown of life is not something we earn, but something God graciously gives to all who persevere, to those whose first loyalty is Jesus. And one of the ways that we know that we have that first loyalty to Jesus is how we respond to trials and temptations, how we deal with challenges and oppositions to faith, how we face up to temptation, how we seek to take attention away from, from other things and follow Jesus first. And verses 13 to 15 are a reminder to us just of how bad we are. Verses 16 to 18 is how, a reminder of how good God is. And I put a quote a couple of weeks ago in, at the end of the midweek messenger exactly on that, quoting from the hymn writer John Newton, who wrote Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken and wrote Amazing Grace. Newton towards the end of his life said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That sums up James verse, uh, verses 13 to um, 18 of chapter 1. We have fallen, we sin, but God is a great Savior. So then, who wants to go to heaven? Who wants to go to heaven tonight? Who wants to follow Jesus and get to know God better? Who wants to follow Jesus and get to know God better if it involves a bit of sacrifice? And, uh, my favorite um, Scottish theologian um, once said, I would rather be miserable in Glasgow than happy anywhere else. I think when he made that, said that, I think it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, actually. I think he was saying, you know, this is where I belong, this is where I've been called to, this, and I, I love this place. I don't think he was making an absolute rule of it. It certainly wouldn't go down well everywhere. I actually quoted, quoted him once in a, from a pulpit where he was often quoted, actually, um, but it didn't go down terribly well. That pulpit was in Edinburgh. Um, I would rather be miserable in G Glasgow than happy anywhere else. 
But actually, I, I think what he was saying is, you know, this is, this is, where I, this is what I am. This is where I belong. This is, this, and this is what's most important. But what about, I would rather be suffering in Christ than having a life of ease anywhere else. You see, that wouldn't be tongue-in-cheek. That wouldn't be just something said, you know, to entertain or make some clever wee point. This is actually the essence of whether we're Christians at all. I would rather have to make sacrifices, be willing to be put upon, to endure some hostility, to be taken advantage of in order to be faithful to Jesus. I would rather that than escape all of these and miss out on the crown of life. That's the challenge of these verses in James 1. Not miserable in Glasgow or happy somewhere else, but tested, tried, taken advantage of, making sacrifices in Christ or having an easy time but missing out on the crown of life. And just like the who wants to go to heaven and who wants to go to heaven tonight questions, that challenge asks us to reflect on what really matters to us, what we really seek first, what really counts. And love for Jesus, loyalty to Jesus, will only be seen when trials are overcome, when sufferings are endured, when sacrifices are made. So, have we made sacrifices? Been willing to suffer, be willing to take risks, wanting to share faith even though we're not very sure it's going to go down very well, give ourselves away to others, serve all for Jesus' sake, and even risk the misunderstanding and the criticisms that inevitably come. Are they worth it? Which is to say, is Jesus worth it? Let us pray. Gracious God, in our service today, we will soon celebrate communion. We will soon come to the table where we reflect on the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ poured out for us. Oh, the audacity of thinking that we should come and take from Christ's broken body, from Christ's shed blood, and, and not think that it will cost us anything, demand anything of us. Or oh, the audacity to think that we can follow such a Savior and have an easy time at the same time. Forgive us when we've thought that. Forgive us when we've sought that. Forgive us when we've lived like that. Rather, help us to count it as pure joy. Help us 
to ask for wisdom more readily and help us to boast in such a Savior who died, who rose, and who is coming again for us. Amen.